I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. The FDA just granted accelerated approval to a new Alzheimer's disease drug called Lacanamab, a.k.a. Lakembi. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. The new medications for Alzheimer's disease work by reducing the buildup of beta-amyloid plaque in the brain. This sticky protein has been blamed as the primary culprit behind Alzheimer's dementia. But are there other ways to think about this devastating condition? Our guest is a neuroscientist and a medicinal chemist who's been exploring alternate approaches to Alzheimer's disease. We'll explore the role of head trauma, toxic chemicals, and viruses in the etiology of dementia. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, how can we think different about Alzheimer's disease? In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines... The COVID variant, XBB 1.5, has been spreading like wildfire. First identified in the Northeast U.S. in October, it's rapidly raced through New York and New England. Now it's overtaken previous COVID variants throughout North America and Europe. Keeping track of new variants has become challenging. We've gone from Alpha, Delta, and Omicron to a veritable alphabet soup of names like BA2, BQ1.1, and now XBB1.5. Canadian biologist Dr. Ryan Gregory has come up with a catchier title for this latest variant. He calls it the Kraken after the mythical Scandinavian sea monster. This XBB1.5 variant is extremely contagious. In addition, it appears to have developed the ability to evade our immune defenses. People who have recovered from a previous COVID infection may be vulnerable to this new variant, and vaccination is less effective against the Kraken. Monoclonal antibodies no longer work against this strain, although antiviral drugs such as Paxlovid and Legevrio still appear effective. The best defense appears to be reducing transmission with masks, ventilation, and air filtration. Have you ever wondered whether a healthful diet makes a real difference? A study published in JAMA Internal Medicine shows that it does. The investigators analyzed the diets of more than 75,000 women in the Nurses' Health Study and 44,000 men in the Health Professionals' Follow-Up Study. These longitudinal cohort studies offered detailed dietary data over more than 3.5 million person years. Their eating patterns were analyzed to see how closely they approached the Healthy Eating Index the alternate Mediterranean diet, the healthful plant-based diet index, or the alternate healthy eating index. People who scored well on any of these diets were less likely to die during the study. In addition, people following either the alternate Mediterranean diet or the alternate healthy eating pattern were less likely to die from a neurodegenerative disorder such as Parkinson or Alzheimer's disease. The researchers conclude that multiple healthy eating patterns can be tailored to individual tastes and will help us live longer, healthier lives. In contrast, fast food may be responsible for a troubling rise in fatty liver disease. 
The researchers analyzed data from people who participated in the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. They measured liver fat in 4,000 adults and queried them about their fast food consumption. More than half ate fast food at least occasionally. For 29%, fast food provided at least a fifth of their daily calories. These individuals were significantly more likely to have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. This serious condition can lead to scarring, liver cancer, or liver failure. Hearing loss may be perceived as a minor annoyance, but a new study published in JAMA shows it's associated with dementia. Over 2,400 older citizens were assessed for hearing and cognition. Those with hearing loss were more likely to have a higher prevalence of dementia compared with people whose hearing is normal. Those using hearing aids were less likely to be diagnosed with dementia. The authors point out that 8% of dementia worldwide may be attributed to hearing loss. Given that there are no effective treatments for cognitive decline, addressing hearing loss would seem to be prudent public health policy. Finnish researchers have found that people who take vitamin D supplements appear less likely to develop melanoma, the most serious kind of skin cancer. They recruited nearly 500 people at high risk for skin cancer and asked them about their use of vitamin D. Blood tests showed that serum levels of the vitamin corresponded to people's reports of supplement use, never, occasional, or regular. Those who took vitamin D regularly were much less likely to have melanoma. Even occasional users seem to have a slightly lower risk of this cancer. People in Finland can't get vitamin D from sun exposure for about half the year, so supplement use may be even more helpful at these northern latitudes. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The Food and Drug Administration just gave accelerated approval to the Alzheimer drug Lecanemab. The brand name will be Lecambi, and the annual price is projected at over $26,000. This medication helps remove beta amyloid plaque from the brain. Researchers have focused on this risk factor almost exclusively over the last several decades. But is it the only way to conceptualize the development of dementia? To help us better understand this complex condition, we are talking today with Dr. Donald Weaver. He's senior scientist at the Premble Brain Institute at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada. He's also a professor of medicine, chemistry, and pharmaceutical sciences at the University of Toronto and a neurologist at the Toronto Western Hospital. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Don Weaver. Hi, glad to be here today and looking forward to our conversation. Dr. Weaver, you are uniquely qualified to study neurodegenerative diseases. You're a clinical neurologist and, I might add, a medicinal chemist. You're also a professor of pharmaceutical science And that's allowed you to observe the controversies surrounding research into Alzheimer's disease with a, what I think is a very special perspective. So, can you tell us why focusing exclusively on beta amyloid over the last few decades may have led us 
astray? Well, I don't know so much that it's led us astray. It has certainly failed to deliver a meaningful therapeutic or meaningful drug to date. I mean, if we go back to 1907, when Alzheimer's first described this disease, it was appreciated that there's these clumps of proteins, and we now know that these proteins are beta amyloid. Uh, and it's not surprising that people have focused on beta amyloid and on its its clumping for, for many years. And, um, you know, probably that was time well spent, but it hasn't really translated into, into anything uh, useful. But uh, tremendous insights have been put together about the disease. And, you know, I would think that today uh, we are certainly much, much further ahead than we were 20 years ago. Um, but is the amyloid hypothesis the end-all and be-all? No. Uh, but it, uh, it probably has made uh, substantial advances for us in our understanding of the disease. Dr. Weaver, I wonder if you could tell us what is beta amyloid and, you know, why is it a problem? So beta amyloid is a, uh, a peptide, uh, a small protein that is found in the brain uh, of people who have Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and the traditional thinking is that it shouldn't be there. It's abnormal. Um, and that it, it clumps up. And uh, when it clumps up, it becomes toxic to brain cells. It kills brain cells. And uh, so that has been the, the traditional understanding, our traditional conceptualization of the cause and, and the progression of the disease. But certainly, as I you know, pointed out, people who have tried to come up with drugs that prevent it from clumping or prevent it from being formed, that really hasn't translated into a, a useful therapeutic for people yet. And, and as a medicinal chemist and someone who's very familiar with pharmaceutical science and research, I'm sure you recognize that uh, the pharmaceutical manufacturers, A, have spent a ton of money, billions of dollars, and have come up with really amazingly effective compounds that can actually get rid of beta amyloid. So why haven't those drugs worked? Ah, uh, um. And, and yes, uh, some amazing medicinal chemistry has been done and, and some really, really nice compounds, nice drugs have been made and they deliver on what they're supposed to deliver. Uh, they, they work uh, at taking away beta amyloid. They just don't work at, uh, at curing the disease. And I think there might be maybe multiple reasons. Uh, first of all, maybe we're not treating soon enough. Um, it's entirely possible that beta amyloid, uh, you know, has been... They're doing its, its nasty work for decades prior to the first symptoms of the disease. And so bringing it in when the first becomes symptomatic is a little late in the process. Uh, that's one. The, the other way that I like to think about this is Alzheimer's disease is not like high blood pressure. If, um, if you have high blood pressure, you go see your family physician and your family physician does not say, here is the drug. Here is the one, the only drug. That, that we have for, for high blood pressure, there's a whole bunch of different drugs that can be used, you know, complement each other, et cetera. And, and from a mechanistic point of view, you know, high blood pressure is trivial compared to, to Alzheimer's disease. So why are we expecting that we're going to get one drug, the, the magic bullet? There may not be a magic bullet, and ultimately it may be a combination of drugs, and perhaps an anti-amyloid drug is going to be part of that cocktail, that combination. 
there's one aspect to this basic research that has fascinated me. Biffin. And that is that there are people with beta amyloid in their brains. And I'm referring now in part to the nurses study and the, no, I think it's the, the nuns the nun study, study yeah. where you say, oh yeah, these older women have beta amyloid in the brain, but they're doing just fine. Thank you very much. And so it's as if, well, wait a minute, some people with a lot of beta amyloid are in terrible shape and in institutions because their brains are not functional. But there are some people who seem to have a fair amount of beta amyloid, but they're functioning reasonably well. Do we understand what that's about? Uh, <laughs> that's a very good question. Uh, and um, and that is uh, cited a lot about, you know, uh, the the relationship between the amount of beta amyloid and, and the disease magnitude isn't isn't a perfect relationship, uh, and um, this is one of the of the difficulties that the amyloid hypothesis has to has to deal with. And you know, have I seen really convincing arguments uh, about this? No, not really. But you know, the 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 fact still remains that uh, people with Alzheimer's disease do have an excessive burden of this. Uh, and, you know, that's why historically and traditionally it's been the target. It's not a perfect target. That There are holes in the story, as you quite rightly point out. Now, Dr. Weaver, we noticed that the FDA actually approved this past year uh, a drug for Alzheimer's disease, a drug called aducanumab. And that drug is designed to take beta amyloid out of the brain. I think it does that. Mm -hmm. um, but despite the fact that, and the brand name is Aduhelm, despite the fact that it does take beta amyloid out of the brain, it doesn't appear, as far as we have seen, to make a big difference in how well people can function. It was kind of controversial. I would be interested in your take on aducanumab. Um aducanumab is certainly a controversial area. It's uh, it's a biologic, and um, meaning it's a, it's a big molecule, uh, and it, it does as it uh, is supposed to. Uh, it cleans up beta amyloid out of the brain. And the issue here is, is beta amyloid really the cause uh, of Alzheimer's disease? Um, and, um, you know, the I think that if the, the Agent was started early enough. Um, it would be an interesting study to see if people actually did get better uh, on this particular agent. Uh, but we are dealing, of course, with the the problem that uh, it has to be started very early in the course of the disease, and uh, maybe before the person even has symptoms for it to work. And of course, the the other I'll call it Achilles' heel, perhaps associated with the use of aducanumab, is its uh, toxicity. Um, there is toxicities associated with its use. Uh, and so, you know, if you're talking about putting an individual on a drug, which may or may not work, and you should take it before you even have symptoms of disease, and oh, by the way, uh, it has a lot of side effects associated with it, um, there's a lot of ifs in that uh, about moving forward with this in, in a comfortable sort of way. It's not like it's a you know, a completely harmless agent that you can take and experience no, no side effects. Um, and so, you know, 
just as in the whole area of Alzheimer's, there's controversy. There's controversy about aducanumab. There are, you know, camp of, of neurologists out there who go, give it a chance. You know, may, maybe we should be using this stuff. Maybe, you know, maybe we should be exploring what its actual clinical usefulness is. And there's a camp out there which says, you know, this had no business being approved. We shouldn't be using it. And so th- th- there's a lot of polarity in, in, our, in the approach to this particular agent. But, um, you know, it's safe to say it's not the wonder drug uh, and it's not the cure. And um, uh, but, you know, it, nonetheless, it's still gratifying to see that uh, it got approved and it's moving ahead because this is an area in which no agent had been approved for for years. Um, and, you know, uh, I think it's it's important to realize that progress can be made. So it's not the wonder drug, but I'm glad to see that it, uh, it's out there. Could you tell us a bit more about those side effects, please? Um, well, um, the uh, I, I mean, certainly we don't use uh, aducanumab uh, up here, but uh, the main one has been that, um, you know, a percentage of people can get some swelling of the brain associated with this. Uh, and, um, you know, like any biologic drug, uh, it certainly has, you know, a wide range of implications in being taken. Uh, so, you know, if it's not going to work, don't take it. You're listening to Dr. Donald Weaver, Senior Scientist at the Kremble Brain Institute at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada. Dr. Weaver is a medicinal chemist as well as a clinical neurologist working on developing new therapies for Alzheimer's disease. He's also a professor of medicine, chemistry, and pharmaceutical sciences at the University of Toronto and a neurologist at the Toronto Western Hospital. After the break, we'll take another look at the two camps of scientists studying Alzheimer's disease. How has Dr. Weaver's research changed his understanding of the condition? Are there factors that suggest it might be an autoimmune disease? What role might infectious agents like SARS-CoV-2 or herpes virus be playing? We'll hear about a study on an antiviral drug called Valtrex, and how it affects Alzheimer's disease. What's the possible impact of viral reactivation? Dr. Weaver explains how beta amyloid could be trying to fight off infections and why it might turn against us. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs, focused on purity, potency, and transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product. 
More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today, we're talking about Alzheimer's disease. The FDA has approved two controversial new drugs for this devastating disorder. Last year, the agency gave accelerated approval to aducanumab, known by the brand name Aduhelm. Last week, the FDA also granted accelerated approval to a similar drug, lecanemab. It will be sold as lecembi. Both medications work by reducing beta amyloid plaque in the brain, but it's not clear how much they will actually help patients with things like memory or activities of daily living. Our guest today is Dr. Donald Weaver, Senior Scientist at the Crumble Brain Institute at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada. Dr. Weaver is a medicinal chemist as well as a clinical neurologist working on developing new therapies for Alzheimer's disease. He's also Professor of Medicine, Chemistry, and Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of Toronto and a neurologist at the Toronto Western Hospital. Dr. Weaver, it seems as if there are, it's unfair to call it two camps, but for the last decade or so, there has been the the group that has really entrenched itself in the beta amyloid theory, and they're hanging on for dear life, and maybe at some point they'll be proven right. But there's a whole bunch of other neuroscientists who are saying, well, wait a minute, there may be other factors involved in the development of Alzheimer's disease. Your laboratory at the, and is it pronounced Cremble Brain Institute at the University Health Network in Toronto? Yes. Uh, it's come up with an alternate theory of Alzheimer's disease. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that. Certainly. As I mentioned earlier, people have traditionally thought of beta amyloid as a, as a peptide, a small protein that's not supposed to be in the brain, that's abnormal, and it shouldn't be there. And I think the first point I want to make out about our thinking is that we think that beta amyloid should be in the brain and that it is a normal part of your immune system within the brain. And so that does represent a, a slightly different thinking about um, beta amyloid. The next issue is there are a lot of different risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. You know, we hear about repetitive head trauma. There is the British study about dental infections. There's studies about exposure to air pollution. And, you know, you look and you go, wow, there's a whole lot of different risk factors. What's, what's a common thread that sort of weaves between all these different risk factors and really enables us to come up with a unifying sort of understanding? And that's the immune system. Uh, I mean, certainly... You know, if you, if you hit your head, uh, the immune system is there to try to repair things. If you have an infection, the immune system is there to try to deal with it. So if we're trying to understand this, this really diverse uh, and wide-ranging collection of, of risk factors, the immune system starts to, you know, come in uh, as a unifying sort of explanation. And this then fits in nicely with the possibility that beta amyloid is, is in fact part of our normal immune system. So... We did um, some large-scale uh, computer simulations where we took beta amyloid and modeled it uh, sitting above a, a, a model brain cell membrane. 
uh, and it sort of latches on and, and the beta amyloid wiggles itself through the, through the membrane and punctures it, filling the brain cell. That is exactly how peptides from the immune system kill bacteria. And so you're sitting going, oh, look at that. That's neat. It really is behaving like uh, a, a peptide in the immune system. And uh, so when various factors, you know, like head trauma, uh, like exposure to pollution and whatnot occurs, beta amyloid is produced normally as part of the immune system. But oops, unfortunately, beta amyloid can't tell bacteria from brain cells and it starts to kill brain cells. And that's where we got this notion that it was an autoimmune disease because beta amyloid functioning as part of the immune system mistakenly looks at brain cells as somehow foreign and attacks them. Are there any other um, aspects that lead you to think it's an autoimmune disease? And if so, are there approaches to autoimmune diseases that might be effective against Alzheimer? Yeah, good question. I get that question a lot lately. Um, and so the, um, the first thing I, I, I think I want to point out here is that the immune system response has usually got two phases. The first phase is called the innate uh, immune response. And the second is called the adaptive. The innate is, is the first pass immune when you have a, you know, a bacteria in you or something. Uh, and it's a fairly crude, nonspecific sort of attack. And it's the, the second one, the adaptive immune system, which gives the, the focus, you know, the exact pinpointing what the, the attacking agent is and, and dealing with it. So traditional autoimmune diseases, which, you know, we tend to see more so in the world of rheumatology, uh, diseases like rheumatoid arthritis or systemic lupus erythematosus, they are autoimmune diseases of adaptive immunity, meaning that there are autoantibodies. Um, it, in our belief, this is an autoimmune disease of innate immunity, the, the first type uh, or the first phase of, of immunity. And so in answer to the question about um, you know spillover of therapeutics, uh, if we look at drugs that are currently used for autoimmune diseases, particularly the rheumatological ones, no, they're not going to work for Alzheimer's disease uh, in accord with our, our model. However, what they do is, is point in a direction for developing uh, drugs. So, you know, if you come in with a, a flare of your rheumatoid arthritis or a flare of your lupus, it's not unusual that the physicians will give you steroids, steroids to suppress it. Well, steroids are, of course, part of you. They're, they're endogenous to you. They're normally found within you. And so that means that the immune system really has a whole bunch of checks and balances within the body that try to, to deal with it. And so if we're dealing with autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, uh, a molecule that normally occurs within us, steroids can be used to manipulate it. So our thinking was, there must be the same thing. There must be the same thing um, for innate immunity. Uh, what, are, what are the molecules that normally occur within our brain that uh, you know, help us to damp down and control uh, innate immunity and, and regulate it? So we screened uh, approximately 1,200 molecules in the brain to see which ones might have some ability to control innate immunity in the brain. And we found a number of small molecules related to tryptophan, an amino acid in the brain, certainly have the ability to dampen down 
the innate immune system of the brain. And so we're thinking that this may be an initial insight that could um, certainly open the door to new therapeutic approaches to Alzheimer's. Dr. Weaver, I'd like to go back to the infectious agents for a moment, if I might, and talk a bit about COVID. Yep. Because uh, one of the aspects of long COVID or whatever you want to call it, post-COVID syndrome, is what we have referred to as brain fog. Yep. And there are a lot of people who say, you know, my brain is not working the way it used to pre-COVID. And it also takes me back decades to a pathologist in the Northwest United States who was arguing that herpes infections that that literally cause, you know, cold sores on the lip, they hang out in the brain. Herpes simplex one yes. uh, in, the, in the basal ganglia. And they migrate down. And he said, but, you know, as a neuropathologist, I'm seeing the possibility of damage from the herpes virus migrating up into the brain itself and causing damage. And there are a couple of Harvard uh, neuroscientists who have also pointed at uh, herpes type viruses and uh, uh, a, a scientist in the UK, uh, uh, Ruth Itzak. Itzak, who has also pointed at herpes viruses. Yes. And so I'm just wondering about the possibility that it's not just bacteria, but maybe viruses like COVID, like herpes, like Epstein-Barr, that may be doing damage to brain cells or that possibly beta amyloid is somehow involved in that process. Y your thoughts, please? Oh, I fully agree with what you just said. Uh, and um, so uh, let's start with the, the, the herpes uh, story first. Do I personally believe um, that uh, herpes could have a role in Alzheimer's from my point of view? Yes. And, but once again, I, I'm drawing a distinction here. It is not the herpes infection that's causing the Alzheimer's. It's when you get a virus, a bacteria, any foreign microbe going through the brain, it turns on the immune system in the brain. And when that immune system in the brain is turned on in a self-defense mode, Beta amyloid is produced as part of the immune system and beta amyloid, as I said, gets confused and starts targeting brain cells. So I don't think it in, in my, from my perspective, I don't think that it's the herpes virus itself uh, that's actually harming the brain. I think it's that the herpes virus is a trigger, a trigger that turns on the immune system in the brain. And then that is when the mischief starts. Now, um, and that's why... We don't have to say it is uniquely uh, a virus with this particular virus or this particular bacteria that causes Alzheimer's. No. Anything that turns on the immune system, be it a virus, be it bacteria, be it air pollution, whatever, can turn on the immune system and ultimately culminate in, the, in this autoimmune phenomenon about which I am speaking. Um, and so, you know, there's been this long standing historical interest in herpes virus with good reason. I mean, herpes virus is a virus that, uh, that, you know, has a long history in neurology of getting into brain, causing herpes encephalitis. It likes the temporal lobes of the brain areas, you know, that we associate with memory and ultimately with dementia. But if we, if we take that story and, and move it to the present, and that's COVID. 
Uh, and so, you know, when, when COVID first made its appearance in, in early 2020, that we were, you know, starting to become aware of it, everyone was thinking of this as primarily a respiratory virus, but it's a virus that also gets in brain. And, you know, there are lots of people who have acute problems, uh, lots of headaches, lots of other neurologic symptoms early in the course. Uh, and, you know, the, there's people who, who get brain fog, as you, you know, have already mentioned. Whether COVID is going to be a long-term risk factor for Alzheimer's disease is a question that remains to be answered. Um, I, um, you know, a while ago published some uh, a, a paper that said uh, the nth wave of um, uh, of COVID will it be Alzheimer's? You know, d- uh, are we going to see, say, in twenty twenty five years, uh, a, a large bump uh, in the number of people with Alzheimer's disease as a consequence uh, of of COVID? I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but certainly, if uh, one of the risk factors for Alzheimer's is things that turn on the immune system in the brain, then that is a reasonable worry. It surely is. And if you think about how many people around the world have had COVID, it's pretty scary. That it, it, it is it very might scary. be a risk yeah. factor. Now, I don't, I, you know, uh, lots of people have had COVID and I'm not saying that everyone, you know, is is at risk. But I'm saying that it could be one of these contributing factors that we may have to be concerned about in future. I'm curious about a study that is now underway involving an antiviral drug called valacyclovir, Valtrex, mm-hmm. to see if it would have any benefit against Alzheimer's disease. And there's also a theory of what people are calling a viral reactivation. That is to say that COVID may be reactivating herpes viruses or that um, other infections may reactivate what we'll call latent or dormant viral infections. Any thoughts at all about trying to get rid of the virus with a drug like valacyclovir? Um, you know, once again, clinical trials will ultimately tell the story, but from a purely, you know, mechanistic and hypothetical point of view, anything that decreases viral load in brain is a good thing um, because uh, anything that turns on the immune system in the brain, if you're at risk for an autoimmune process, you know, uh, turning on that off would be would be beneficial. So trying to deal with uh, viral infections, uh, I think, is uh, is good. Uh, and may have a role in certainly preventing Alzheimer's disease in in, in future. The um, that the notion that uh, COVID could uh, reactivate latent infections uh, that's also I think a, an important issue um, because you know if if a viral disease becomes reactivated in the brain, the immune system is going to respond once again in all of its fury. Uh, so uh, you know. There are just so many interesting questions and possibilities around Alzheimer's and around COVID. And, uh, you know, a lot of good work's going on in both of these areas and in the overlap between them. And uh, the future is going to have a whole lot of lessons to teach us. We just have about a minute and a half left before the break. Uh, Dr. Weaver, could you help us understand in that short period of time what you think beta amyloid is actually doing to fight? off infections, not just bacterial, but what about viruses? How How is it working to kind of try and protect us 
And then why is it turning against us? Okay. So in uh, <laughs> briefly, the, um, uh, as mentioned, it has direct antibacterial properties so we can understand how it can attack a, a, a bacteria. Um, it's an immune peptide. And so when it becomes active, it also activates a whole bunch of other immune peptides in the brain called cytokines. And so it's a cascade effect. And so it's not ice, uh, working in isolation. It's, it's part of a much larger immune system. And so that really is turning everything on. Uh, and that really enables it then to, to target uh, viruses and a wide range of other um, you know, microbes that, that could be in the brain. And so it really is contributing to the immune system's broad spectrum uh, attack. If, if we look at the, the nature of a bacterial membrane, the lipids, the fats that make it up and the charges on them, and you compare that with neurons, which an experiment that we've done, they are shockingly similar. And because they are shockingly similar, that's why it has antibacterial properties. But when it's turned on for whatever reason, be it a virus, bacteria, whatever, it mistakes the brain cells as somehow foreign and attacks them. You're listening to Dr. Don Weaver, Senior Scientist at the Kremble Brain Institute at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada. He's also Professor of Medicine, Chemistry, and Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of Toronto and a neurologist at the Toronto Western Hospital. After the break, Dr. Weaver shares the implications of his research for preventing dementia in the future. One important factor is head trauma. Football, soccer, and hockey players often experience head trauma. So do victims of domestic violence. What about toxic chemicals? How do they affect the brains? We know that herbicides and pesticides may increase our risk for Parkinson's disease. What about the likelihood of Alzheimer's disease? What lifestyle approaches should we embrace to minimize our risk of developing Alzheimer's? Are there ways to nudge our brain chemistry in a beneficial direction? We'll also get Dr. Weaver's vision for the future. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research. Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder, providing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance. Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory. Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code PEOPLES15. More information at cocovia.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, offering its cardio health product with 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols in powder and capsule form. 
or information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Do we need to reconsider our understanding of Alzheimer's disease and its causes? We know that head trauma can increase the risk for dementia. What about exposure to toxic chemicals? What other lifestyle factors could be relevant? Our guest today is Dr. Donald Weaver. He is Senior Scientist at the Kremble Brain Institute at the University Health Network, Toronto, Canada. He's a professor of medicine, chemistry, and pharmaceutical sciences at the University of Toronto and a neurologist at the Toronto Western Hospital. Dr. Weaver, we want to ask about the implications of your research for possibly helping people in the future. And I will say that I have a personal interest in this because... My mother, who is 96 years old, soon to be 97, has dementia. And I would really prefer to find something I can do over the next 20 years before I am 96 and 97 that would prevent that. So do tell us how you see the the work that you are doing currently um, working itself out to offer those of us who aren't yet demented some hope. Okay. Um, so the two huge stumbling blocks that we have from a clinical perspective in Alzheimer's is not only therapeutics, but also diagnostics. It's not like, um, you know, over the last 20 years, we've had a blood test that we can measure your serum Alzheimer's factor and say, oops, you got it. We don't, you know, and we're still playing around with spelling the word world backwards and and other things, you know, that we've been doing for years. Um, Although, you know, in truth, there are some advances being made uh, in diagnostics. So, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, what can I do? It would be nice if we had improved diagnostics as well as therapeutics. So, if we go to our work, which is in um, Alzheimer's as an autoimmune disease, and you know that's just one of, of the new approaches out there. There's lots of people with other ideas. And I think all of this is exciting because it's just opening the door for multiple new approaches and multiple new therapies. Uh, but you know, if we start to think, well, you know, maybe this is, a, is an autoimmune disease and maybe it's somehow regulated by the metabolism of tryptophan in the brain, this opens two doors. The first door it opens is new diagnostics. Uh, should we be measuring blood levels of, of tryptophan factors, blood levels of inflammatory factors, things like this? Uh, and, um, you know, that's, that's a, a very interesting question, something that we hope to get into uh, in the near future. Uh, and, uh, you know, but I think that this is, will be important because, you know, Alzheimer's may not be one disease. It may be multiple diseases that we're just not yet smart enough to differentiate between the two. And having blood tests that let us measure different factors in different areas may let us really break it down into subtypes and come up with individualized therapies. So that's from the diagnostic perspective. From the therapeutic perspective, then what are factors already in our brain which help us to 
um, regulate the immune system in our brain? And can we commandeer them? Can we take them over? Uh, can we manipulate them for our own benefit? And and you know, that's what we're thinking of. That's what we hope to do with uh, trying to manipulate tryptophan metabolism in the brain is to change various tryptophan-like chemicals in the brain and in doing so, um, modify the innate immune system in the brain in a way that this autoimmune phenomenon to which I'm referring uh, becomes uh, controlled. Dr. Weaver, it seems to me that we understand a bit about what might be problematic. Uh, you mentioned earlier that head trauma, mm -hmm. and I'm thinking about Football players, yes, uh, or hockey and players. Yes, yes, of uh, course. <laughs> we, we, we refer to football as uh, a little different than uh, folks in the UK yep. and perhaps in Canada, where where playing soccer is a, a really ah, uh, favorite sport. Heading the ball, but, the, but you know, also involving head trauma. Also yes. involving heading the ball, yep. and then of course, as you mentioned, there's hockey, mm -hmm. which is a pretty rough sport. Yep. And um, I'm also thinking about. Chemicals, yes. You know, you you mentioned that the possibility of other toxicities, and you know, we are exposed to a number of chemicals in our environment, and so I'm wondering, in the field of prevention, it seems like protecting the brain from nasty things and trauma might make sense, but changing sports. And the way people play hockey or the way people play football, that's going to be very challenging. Um, you only have one brain and your brain is what makes you, you. And so, you know, being a neurologist, you know, your brain is, is, is sacred anatomical territory. You got to protect it. And, uh, you know, when I see professional athletes having multiple concussions, whoa, you know, you sort of wince and go, you don't, you don't like to see that. Getting a, a therapy for Alzheimer's has been challenging and it's going to be challenging. And even when we get them, they're not going to be perfect. And, you know, most of the time they're not going to start until after you've already had some symptoms, meaning you've already got some losses. So, you know, the, here the, the best offense is a good defense. Don't get uh, Alzheimer's in the first place. And, you know, you can help yourself a little bit by minimizing the risk factors. Um, and so, you know, avoiding head trauma, I think, is is very important. And uh, yeah, as you also pointed out, exposure to air pollution, uh, I, I find that a uh, a difficult one to deal with because you know people go, air pollution is bad. Well, ah, I mean, air pollution is bad, but there are so many different types of air pollution. I mean, if you're looking at air pollution in Paris versus Beijing versus Los Angeles, uh, you know, those are three different cities with three different air pollutions, and we really do need to work out. What are the constituents, particular constituents of air pollution that make one perhaps worse than the other so that policy can be made, uh, you know, to try to, to deal with the actual harmful constituents uh, within it? And just sorry, while I'm I'm on this particular topic, uh, I'm going to uh, venture over into a into an area um, that I feel strongly about. Uh, and um, that is uh, head trauma in domestic violence. You know, we always talk about the football players and the soccer players and the hockey players. Yeah, but, um, I mean, domestic violence is a, is a huge issue, um, you know, around the world. Uh, and there are individuals sustaining head trauma all the time from domestic violence, which may be, in my opinion, 
predisposing them to to things like Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And this is another area that I think we are neglecting. Uh, and it's an area uh, in which I think public policy could be made, you know, to better understand this. Because, you know, really, we got to protect the brains, we got to minimize the risk factors, we have to do our best to avoid getting Alzheimer's. It certainly is an important area. And I really want to thank you for bringing it forward. I also want to thank you for that because I think, as you've mentioned, it hasn't been dealt with as forthrightly as it should be. I do want to add those chemicals. Uh, you, as a neurologist, know a lot more than most of us about Parkinson's disease, mm-hmm. another neurodegenerative disease. And we have now linked, for example, herbicides to uh, Parkinson's disease. And there may be other chemicals as well. Presumably, they may also be doing things to the brain that are bad for dementia. Yes. I mean, Parkinson's disease, you know, has traditionally been thought of as a as a movement disorder, uh, but certainly, uh, you know, a significant um, number of individuals who have Parkinson's disease also have cognitive involvement. And, and there is a dementia which sometimes accompanies Parkinson's disease. And um, so... You know, there's this wide range of of neurodegenerative diseases and Alzheimer's is not there by itself. And lessons learned from one disease are applicable to another. So I think that, um, you know, if if a major advance is made in Parkinson's disease and its understanding, the people who do Alzheimer's should be looking at that going, what lessons are there in this discovery for me and and for the disease that I'm focusing on? Um, And... um, you know, the, the understanding of the role uh, of uh, of neurotoxic chemicals, I think, is, is better understood in Parkinson's disease than it is in Alzheimer's. In that particular area, Parkinson's disease is ahead of Alzheimer's disease. And it's an area that I think needs greater focus in the world of Alzheimer's. Of course, what we all want is prevention. <laughs> and you've suggested that avoiding brain trauma would be one thing. But what about exercise? Uh, of all of the quote-unquote preventive measures that have been floated it seems like the research on exercise is the strongest. Why do you think exercise is beneficial uh, in either preventing or dealing with early Alzheimer's? Okay. There is an overlap between vascular factors and an Alzheimer's disease. So that, um, I mean, pure people with pure Alzheimer's disease, um, you know, are not as common, say, as people who have a mix of, of vascular dementia and Alzheimer's dementia. The two frequently coexist. And certainly, if there are vascular factors with some brain cells getting injured, that turns on the immune system again. We're, we bring in the immune system story again. And so having a healthy vascular system to your brain, healthy arteries to the brain is good. And um uh, so exercise, exercise is important. Exercise keeps body mass down. It uh, it helps keep your arteries clean. And um, this is another, you know, substantially important thing that one can do to try to minimize the risk for Alzheimer's. Are there any other lifestyle approaches that we should all be embracing to try to minimize our risk for developing Alzheimer's disease? Preventive approaches that we can be doing now in our lives. Um yeah, certainly. So I've already mentioned, um, you know, as part of the, uh, you know, area around diet is is body weight. Uh, obesity uh, is a risk factor. So trying uh, to uh, to control your weight. 
Um, alcohol, uh, excessive alcohol consumption is, uh, is a risk factor for dementia and, and Alzheimer's disease. So alcohol uh, in moderation uh, is also uh, quite important. Hearing. Uh, and, uh, and here, you know, you can go, well, how does that work into your immune system? <laughs> it doesn't. Uh, and so just like there's holes in, L in the amyloid hypothesis, there's holes in, in the autoimmune perhaps, but it's recognized that uh, hearing impairment uh, somehow can lead to the increased likelihood of having Alzheimer's disease so that if you're hearing impaired, getting that corrected is important. Uh, another area that I find particularly interesting um, and I'm trying to wrap my head around is the protective role of multilingualism. Um, and so certainly, you know, it is appreciated that people uh, who are fluent in multiple languages seem to have a cognitive protective uh, factor ongoing here. And um, uh, so, you know, being multilingual uh, as early as you can in life uh, is probably also a protective factor. So there's a, there's a large number of these. Uh, and, uh, you know, I really think that, uh, of course, the, the old sort of motherhood ones of, you know, don't overeat, don't get fat, not too much fat, don't smoke and don't drink uh, are, are good, good for you in general and good for your brain in particular. What about tryptophan? You've mentioned that a couple of times. I know that people can buy 5-hydroxytryptophan over the counter to presumably have an impact on serotonin levels. There's a lot of people taking melatonin at night to try and get a good night's sleep. Is there any way of manipulating our brain neurochemistry that might be positive and not perhaps negative? Um, well, that's a very good question. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, I think that it's too early for me to give a definitive statement uh, on that. I mean, am, am I taking tryptophan every day? No. Um, uh, do I fully, you know, 100% understand, uh, tryptophan metabolism and how it's really interacting with Alzheimer's? Uh, not yet. Uh, that is something that we are working on, uh, every day. Uh, and, um, you know, I'd like to think that, you know, in the not too distant future, we'll have some different ways uh, of manipulating, but right now it's too early for me to comment on whether or not people should or should not be taking tryptophan. Uh, I just don't know. I just don't know. One of the great disappointments seems to be that uh, the funders have put all of their chips, or at least the great majority of them, on the um, beta amyloid theory. Yep. And you've been emphasizing the multiple new approaches, the idea of autoimmunity in the brain. And, and I'm wondering, why do you think so many researchers and pharmaceutical companies have been cautious and reluctant even to look beyond the beta amyloid plaque theory and what would you like to see for the future? Um, well, you know, there's that that old joke about the the little boy who's looking for the lost coin under the under the light, uh, and somebody asks what he's doing. He says, "Well, you know, I, I lost you know my quarter, and I'm looking for it." They said, "Oh, did you lose it here?" He said, "No, I, I lost it down the street." But why are you looking here? He said, "Well, this is where the light is," uh, and um, you know, I think that that sort of mindset ha has been prevalent in, in Alzheimer's research for a long time, that everyone thought it was amyloid. So this is where we better be looking. This is where the light's shining. But the, the, the failure of the amyloid hypothesis to deliver, you know, therapies uh, has resulted in, in these new ideas. Uh, and uh, the immune system is only one. You know, there are people who say that maybe it's a disease of mitochondria. Maybe it's a disease of membranes. I mean, it goes on and on. Uh, and there's lots of them. And this is good. This is wonderful because, you know, 
Alzheimer's is in desperate need of thinking outside of amyloid's traditional thinking. And, um, you know, it, it's time for the funders. It's time for people to support the, these various other ideas uh, because we're all circling around. No one's hitting the target, but we're, we're circling around it. And, uh, you know, it's going to take more research and, and, and more insights, but it's going to happen. It's, 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 it's there. Um, and, um, you know, the more different people taking different approaches, it can only be good. Dr. Don Weaver, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Donald Weaver, Senior Scientist at the Crumble Brain Institute at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada. Dr. Weaver is a medicinal chemist as well as a clinical neurologist working on developing new therapies for Alzheimer's disease. He's also a professor of medicine, chemistry, and pharmaceutical sciences at the University of Toronto and a neurologist at Toronto Western Hospital. When we spoke with Dr. Weaver, and I referred to my 96-year-old mother, she was still alive. She passed away recently, just before her 97th birthday. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wadarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, the maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial, connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. The herb of the month is milk thistle. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today's show is number 1,326. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments to let us know what you think about today's show. You can email us, radio at peoplespharmacy.com. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you'll also have regular access to our weekly podcast and find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show 
without you.